Okay, it is nine on the dot. I think we should start off with a book giveaway. I like to do those often, as long as I have the money to buy books to give away, <laughs> which I do run out each year, but I have a budget, which you should have, by the way, a book budget, right? Anybody say amen to that? <laughs> so here I have John Calvin, a little book on the Christian life, great little book, pulled from his institutes, just teaching about the Christian life and what it's about. Anybody can read this. It's like 70, 80 pages, I think. And they're smaller pages. Um, the question I want to ask, and whoever raises their hand and gets it right first, gets this book. The question is, and Derek, you can't answer, and um, Frank, you can't answer, and everybody else can answer. Okay. What's the number one tool that we use to defend the faith? Jessica, I think, was first. The Bible. All right. You got the book. If you get nothing else out of this whole class this semester, remember, use the Bible to defend the faith. Not philosophy, not your mind, although you will use your mind, of course. Let's pray and then we'll jump into this new topic. Lord, we're grateful this morning just to come together to learn, to to grow in the faith, to understand your word better, to understand how to talk to unbelievers. Help us, Lord, to be bold to be gentle, to be kind, to know our Bibles so well that we have the right verses, uh, at least on our minds, so that we can look them up and help others to see the glory of Christ, the glory of the gospel. Give us that insight, Lord. Give us that love for the lost. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so this is apologetics, equipping class. Apologetics, and a summary, is the defense of the faith. And... I've taught this once before in another church, first time here. Uh, We do equipping classes for these three purposes. Just to give you a kind of an overview of equipping classes and what what is this about. Um, Well, it's it's like a seminary class. I think it's uh, Bonnie who's always saying to people that uh, Michael and Frank came back from seminary and they just want to do seminary here with you guys, which is true, except you don't have to write the papers. And sometimes you are told to read the books, but not always. Uh, those papers can be fun. But what's the purpose? They're designed to take Christians deeper in their understanding of the Bible. So most of our classes are either about the Bible or related to the Bible or use the Bible. Theology. Apologetics is, is theology. It's a theological discipline. When I took this in seminary, when you study it, you're studying theology. And it's also about Christian living. Equipping classes in general here are to meet these three goals. They're not verse-by-verse exposition, although sometimes we do a class that's a study of a book like Frank just did with Micah. But often it is topically focused, theologically focused, focused on very specific things. Or if it is Bible, it's a quick run-through of the Bible. So the goal is to equip you for ministry. You say, well, I'm not in ministry. Well, Ephesians 4 says you are in ministry. You're in ministry to serve one another in the church. You're also in ministry to teach others. Even if you don't have the gift of teaching, if you're married, you're in ministry to teach your wife. If you're married and have children, you're in ministry to lead your family. And you don't have to know everything there is to know about the Bible, but you have to know something. And so you might as well know the right things versus the wrong things. And also just evangelism. We want to help you evangelize the lost and grow in godliness in your personal life. 
So here's what we've done so far. We started equipping classes about nine months into the church, and we've covered these various classes. They will come back around, so the idea is to rotate through about every five years probably. Uh, some of the core classes are Fundamentals of the Faith. Just, just did that one. Uh, Ernest did upstairs uh, this summer. Old Testament Survey. One of my favorites is Old Testament Survey. Working through the books of the Old Testament and looking at the different issues that come up there and interpretive things and, and uh, theme verses and so on. New Testament Survey. I did four semesters of biblical doctrine. That took two years. That was very fun. Hoping to, to restart that in the next year maybe or two. But uh, that is going through all the different theological uh, topics of the Bible. Church history, last year I did church history one and two, and uh, one of my favorites as well. And so I can't wait to do that again someday. Uh, Biblical backgrounds was sort of a special class I did one summer on the empires in the Bible. There's five empires mentioned, and I went through those. Uh, Frank taught on the attributes of God one summer. He taught on Roman Catholicism which really was an apologetics class he, and somewhat a polemics class where he's not only defending the faith, but talking about their beliefs and why they're wrong. And that was a wonderful class. Some of these, most of these are on our website, by the way. And if you're evangelizing Roman Catholics, you need to listen to that Roman uh, Catholicism class. He goes through a whole class on Mary, a whole class on their view of the Bible, a whole class on the Pope, a whole class on their view of salvation, etc. He also did Walking with Christ, uh, Frank has taught through Titus, he's taught through Hosea verse by verse, through Micah, he's taught a class on spiritual disciplines. Early on we did how to study the Bible, and there's always uh, book discussion groups usually, I should say, going on like there is right now. Uh, so this is where we've been, now we're at apologetics, and Lord willing, uh, this spring we'll have a class on hermeneutics, that's how to interpret the Bible rightly, and I don't yet know the other one, but I need to come up with what I'm going to teach for the spring, so... Let's jump into today's topic. What is apologetics? I already said it's defending the faith. Is there anything else we can say about it? What exactly is it? Is it getting some some shotguns and uh, defending the church or or what they call the church? I don't don't know what kind of faith they would be defending there. It's not that. Uh, The the queen, Elizabeth II, is called, called the defender of the faith. Is that what we're talking about? By the way, Henry VIII got that title from the Pope. This is interesting church history. Henry VIII, as he was a Catholic, wrote against Martin Luther. And he didn't like Luther's teaching, so he wrote a book against Luther, trying to disprove Luther's views. And the Pope awarded him a title, the Defender of the Faith. Then later, Henry VIII rejects the Roman Catholic Church, goes out on his own, starts the Anglican Church. And since then, every monarch is the head of the Anglican Church, And they have the title, Defender of the Faith. But her son, Prince Charles, has said he will not accept that title when he becomes king. He said he didn't want to be a defender of the Christian faith. What is it? Let's go through just the word itself. In modern English, to apologize gives the wrong idea. This is not what we're doing. We're not going around saying, I'm sorry for the Christian faith. That's that's a modern use of the word, which is derived from the older word in Greek, Apologia. Apologia just means a defense. So as time has gone on, it's come over into English. We only now think of apology as saying sorry or apologizing. But originally the term in Greek and even early in English meant to give a defense. So a general definition, uh, this, this guy Kelly James Clark in his book 101 Key Terms and Philosophy and Their Importance for Theology says, 
It's just basically the art of defending a claim against objections. It's an art. It's, it's a, something you have to know some things about and then practice them as you're using them. So it's an art, not just a science. Science is just knowledge. You gain the knowledge, you take it in. An art is taking that knowledge and now practicing it. So people who work with their hands are doing some kind of art, not just painting, but woodworking or building or whatever. Um, in 19, uh, 1794, the word apologetics was used to designate a specific theological discipline. So it wasn't until more recent church history that the term gets used to specifically talk about defending the faith. But there were people before that age that defended the faith. They just didn't use this term necessarily to define it. Webster just says apologetics is a branch of theology having to do with the defense and proofs of Christianity. That's pretty good for Webster's Dictionary. A branch of theology. It's a study in theology having to do with defending Christianity and proving Christianity. Not too bad. Let's get a little more specific with some apologists that have recently written. These are three that I really admire and appreciate their works. I'll be recommending some of their works throughout this course. Uh, Van Til, Cornelius Van Til. These first two men have gone on to be with the Lord, but Cornelius Van Til taught at Westminster Seminary some years ago. He said it's the vindication of the Christian philosophy of life. Worldview. Think, think worldview when you hear Christian philosophy of life. Against the various forms of non-Christian philosophies of life. So he's not just talking religion, of course, yes, but uh, all kinds of philosophies because um, Marxism, it's kind of a religion, but it's more of a philosophy. And we can defend the, the Bible against attacks from Marxists or socialists or so on, existentialism. Those are types of philosophies. There's not a church necessarily called the Church of Existentialism. Uh, apologetics, according to Greg Bonson, this is the second man here, he says it's a way of doing theology, a way of doing evangelism, a way of doing philosophy. So it's putting all of that together. Uh, I tend to want to separate evangelism out a bit from apologetics. That's how we study them. But often they do go together in, in practice. Uh, John Frame, Apologetics to the Glory of God, a great little book. Uh, he says, We may define apologetics as a discipline that teaches Christians how to give a reason for their hope. So there he's using a phrase right out of Scripture, which we'll look at, a reason for their hope. So what is apologetics? It is... Basically defending the Christian faith, or we could say answering objections. And it's a theological discipline. It's a way of, of getting the Christian worldview out of our mouth into the person's ears that's listening. And hopefully they'll understand their worldview is nothing. That it doesn't matter. That they have nothing to really stand on where we have the God of all creation as our foundation and His Word. Here's some other definitions that might help us, not as, as clear-cut, but still good ones. Um, the first one, apologetics, is about inviting people to look into the face of this absolute personal God. It dares them to see Him for who He is and what He means for the world. So it's, it's about pointing people to God eventually. Uh, yes, that is also evangelism, but as I said, they are intertwined often. Apologetics is the vindication of the presence of Christ. At his, as his church against the various forms of non-Christian philosophy of life that constantly attempt to invade 
and intrude that presence. There's all kinds of philosophical views, not just in ancient Greece and Rome, not just in the Middle Ages. Today, people have all kinds of wrong philosophical thinking about life and the world and creation and why we're here. And this is something that we're going to interact with. Often people think, well, apologetics is just for the atheist. I'm going to talk to an atheist. That's one type of person that you might meet. But usually in our area, and I'll talk about this at the end today, you're not going to just come across an atheist every second. You're going to come across some version, some different philosophical Christian, uh, cultural Christian, I should say. Uh, Lastly, apologetics may be defined as persuading people to think through their worldviews, abandon their false beliefs, and embrace Jesus, all while defending the truths of the gospel. So I like this last one because it, it gets some bullet points for us here. It's think through your worldview. Oh, you believe there is a big bang. Well, where did that where did that come from? Who started the match on the big bang? You know, who did that? Have them think through what they actually believe. And the goal is to so they abandon that. It doesn't it doesn't stand any weight. They abandon it. They embrace Jesus and defend the truths of the gospel during the process. You don't ever set the truth of the Bible aside. You are defending it throughout. By the way, on the Big Bang, you know, they put this new telescope in space, and now the scientists are questioning whether the theory of the Big Bang is accurate because they're getting all this new data. You can see further into space, and suddenly they're questioning it. And I just saw an article, I think it was last week or the week before, that scientists are now questioning the evolutionary theory because they're finding so many things that don't match up to what they thought uh, the way it should be. So they're starting to undermine their own uh, foundations. By the way, if you haven't figured it out, today we're talking about this question, what is apologetics? And then hopefully we'll get to why we need to do it. Next week is the how, the how. Uh, So today, what is apologetics? Well, so far, I think it's just a few points we can make. It's a branch of Christian theology, which attempts to give a rational defense of the Christian faith. It It gives a reason for why you believe what you believe. Why do you believe what you believe? And apologetics is a theological discipline that defends the truth of the Christian message. Not with a physical means. We're not getting a, an apologetic army together. We are defending it through reason, through our mind, through our speech, through sometimes writing. I like to think of it as pre-evangelism. Many people have called it that. It's not really evangelism because apologetics is defending the faith evangelism is proclaiming the faith. But you really don't want to just defend the faith all day long and never proclaim it. The goal isn't to convince somebody that you're so smart because you can defend the faith. The goal of apologetics is not to persuade somebody by twisting their their mental arm so that they believe what you believe. The goal is to bring them to Christ. The goal is for Christ to save them. The goal is for them to hear the truth of Scripture, so that they can and will and God changes their heart so they desire to be saved. They won't always be, but the better we are at defending the faith, I think the better we'll be able to handle those objections. An apologist is someone who defends the Christian faith. And by the way, I do not recommend you become a a keyboard apologist. Anybody know a a keyboard? I thought I was a good keyboard when I became a Calvinistic, Calvinist uh, I thought, well, I'll just go online. There's a lot of discussion back in 2009, 10, 11. 
and online, and there's blogs and comments, and you could go for like a thousand comments arguing with people, and now there's Facebook and Twitter. There's a lot of keyboard apologists, people who are willing to argue all day long on the Bible about their view of Scripture and defend it. Uh, what I learned is a lot of those people don't even go to church. They don't belong to a church. They have bad theology. They're sort of still sitting in the basement of their mom's house in their underwear, just <laughs> typing um, arguments that are silly. And I still get wrapped up into that sometimes on, on Facebook. Facebook uh, a man said, the Word of God is not the Bible. He said, those are two separate things. And so I'm thinking, I'll help this guy out. You know, I know some verses. I know some verses. 27 replies later, I just gave up and said, you know, I just said, what church are you a part of? What denomination believes this? And he never answered. And that's when I knew I'd wasted too much time already. So there is a place for online media to be helpful. But just realize you have to know when you're answering a fool according to his folly. And you have to know when you need to answer a fool or you're going to look foolish yourself. So you don't want to be like him, the Bible says. Answer a fool according to his folly uh, so that you're not like him. And then sometimes you've got to decide not to do that. So you have to use wisdom. Don't cast your pearls before swine. Uh, use wisdom here. The fly attacking me now. Let's talk about the word um, apologia, apologia. It's, it's a hard G in Greek, but in English we say ja. So apologia. It's used all over the place in the ancient world and later in Christian literature and in the New Testament, of course. Uh, there was an apology, for example, of Socrates. Socrates was this great philosopher in Greece in the 300s um, B.C. And so his student Plato wrote a lot about him. And one of those titles is the Apology of Socrates. Socrates isn't saying sorry for what he said. This is Plato defending Socrates through Socrates' own words. Later, a Christian, an early church father, if you took my church history class uh, last year, about a year ago, we talked about Justin Martyr. And he wrote an apology, a defense, to defend Christianity from heretical ideas. And particularly famous is his one to Trypho the Jew, because Trypho was a friend of his who was uh, saying that Christians believe all these crazy things. And Justin Martyr defended the Christian view from Scripture and wrote letters to Trypho. Also, early Christians would send apologetic letters to the emperors or the governors of Rome. And they would ask uh, for clemency to not be persecuted because here's what we believe and here's why we believe it. And all the things that are being said about Christians aren't true. And even up through the Reformation, you would see men like John Calvin writing a preface to many of his works to the king of France who was persecuting, he was a Roman Catholic, he was persecuting the Reformed people. And so Calvin was, was writing an apology and basically he said, look, this whole book is my defense of the faith. It was called the Institutes of the Christian Religion. Paul uses the language as well. Uh, most often he's talking about a legal defense He's on trial, so he's going to make his defense. They didn't necessarily have defense lawyers, and it doesn't seem like Paul used one. He is making his defense. Hear my defense. Hear my apologia uh, when he's before a mob in Jerusalem. And so in the New Testament sense, you're almost always going to find this 
making a defense of something, usually in a legal matter, there are a few instances, especially in 1 Peter 3, that is a more theological use. So if we did a survey of the Bible, we'd see it used eight times in the New Testament. Six times as a defense. 2 Corinthians 7, 11 is a vindication. And then Acts 25, 16 is Paul's defense as well. So let's look at just a few of these since we have a few minutes to do that. Uh, go to Acts 25, 16. And then we'll work forward through some of these. So the word is used in the Bible in a general sense of making a defense. Later it's going to be picked up in theology and specifically it's, it's making a defense for the Christian faith. And we even see that, I think, hinted at in 1 Peter 3. So Acts 24, uh, 25, 16. I answered them that it is not the custom of the Romans to hand over any man before the accused meets his accusers face to face and has an opportunity to make his defense against the charges. So Paul's on trial and he says, here was my answer, I need to make a defense. It is uh, what needs to occur what is legal, what is proper, what is right. Um, let's go to 2 Corinthians. Uh, actually, let's go back to Acts 22.1 since we're there. So Paul's arrested here in Jerusalem. And he says, men, he's talking about uh, the Jews there. Men, brothers and fathers, older men, younger men my age, hear my defense which I now offer to you. Hear my defense. Hear my apologia. Hear me defend what it is that I'm doing. Now he goes on to preach the gospel uh, to them as quick as he can there. Uh, but you get the idea of this term defense. Now let's look at 2 Corinthians 7.11. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow, has brought about in you. What vindication, what apologia there of yourselves. What indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. And everything, you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. So he's being a bit sarcastic here. And he's saying, you, you've justified, you, you've defended yourself. You've defended uh, your view. So there's just a few examples. I'll show you some uh, more specifics that are helpful to us in just a moment. Uh, we already looked at the summary, so I got to... Okay, let's look at those right now. Four key verses. So four key verses. The first one is going to use the word apologia. After that, it's the concept of it. It's not necessarily the word, but the concept of what we're trying to do when we do apologetics. So 1 Peter 3.15. Go there. We're going to spend some time there. This is the apologist verse. If you want to know where do we see that in Scripture... This is it. Now, it's not everything. He's not looking forward to, for 2,000 years necessarily when he writes this. Peter's not and thinking of all the attacks against the faith. But he's giving the foundation for how you should respond when people come up to you with a question. 1 Peter 3, 15. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always uh, being ready. To make a defense, there it is. To make an apologia to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and fear. 
So we're going to go through that verse, look at what each of those lines mean. Three other ones we'll look at more briefly. Jude 3, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, 1 Timothy 6, 20 through 21. Everybody got those four? If you're taking notes, you'll want those four. Please tell us what it is and how to do it. All right, key verse number one. 1 Peter 3.15 Before we can ever do a defense of the faith, Peter says, we must sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. You must sanctify or set apart, literally is to make holy, to set apart, or treat Christ as Lord. How can you defend the faith if Christ is not even your Lord and Savior? You can't. You have a lot of people trying to defend the faith these days, especially online, who aren't even saved. They just like to argue, and they grew up Christian, or they, they sort of stumble on it, or they think it's the newest, coolest thing. You always see things where people say, testimonies where they say, well, I, I was once a Reformed Christian, but now I'm an atheist, and I'm going to go back and attack all those views that I once believed. That's very common. In fact, some people make a lot of money writing a book. If they're famous as a Christian, and then they deny the faith, they go and write a book about it and make millions of dollars, because all the non-Christians buy it up. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. It's talking about the Lordship of Christ. It's a prerequisite. Uh, yeah, you can be a new Christian who doesn't understand the Lordship of Christ, and you need to learn that before you defend the faith. But for the most part, uh, this would be an unbeliever who's not sanctified Christ as Lord in your heart. You must do this. You have to have done this to do apologetics. And it also means that the Lord is in our hearts and he's not being set aside when we make a defense. He's not being set aside. Don't, and we'll talk about method, I think, next week, but don't set the Lordship of Christ aside. Don't set the gospel aside. Don't set the Bible aside and try to find some kind of common ground with people. Uh, well, well, let me show you these scientific facts that support my claim and you can weigh up your scientific facts and you know where that's going to go? So it's going to be scientific fact versus scientific fact all day long. And it's going to come down to basically who can get on the internet and type in their questions faster or uh, who can read a science book or who can look up some scientific fact. Um, there's a place for that, but it's not in apologetics with an unbeliever. Christ is Lord of our lives. He's, he's there in our core. That's what it means, in your heart, in the, the core of your person. Uh, he's, that's going to get our priorities lined up correctly. We're, we're lined up with his lordship. We're not out there running off into sin and saying we're a Christian who's going to defend the faith, but nothing in our life matches up to what Christ has said we should be. If that's the case, if Christ is Lord in our hearts, not that we've made him there, but, but we've sanctified him there, we've, we've set him apart, we've acknowledged that he's Lord, we treasure that, then we're not going to fear man. The fear of man is huge in Christianity. A lot of Christians who would normally be pretty solid fear man. They fear man, and they're not bold to defend the gospel. They fear man in work settings. They fear man in church settings. They fear man in their home with their families. Uh, they go along with the crowd, even if the crowd is, is heresy. They go along with how they grew up. They don't want to offend their parents. I've, I've met many People who don't want to offend their parents by getting baptized because, you know, they got baptized as a child, as a baby that came out the womb and, 
And that is very offensive sometimes to Roman Catholics and others. But you have to be bold. That's what professing the Lord Jesus Christ means. That you're willing to do it publicly. And you don't intend to offend people. You live at peace with all men as long as it is possible. uh, As um, Peter says later in his book. But you've got to proclaim Christ. We don't have a choice with that. And so he says, once, once you're doing that, setting Christ apart, because he's Lord of your life and you're acknowledging that, always being ready to make a defense. Always being in the state of readiness. You're ready to make a defense, to, to give a defense. The word apologia means to give a defense, as we said. You can also think of it as a reply. An excuse, but that doesn't work too much in our modern language. Um, a rationale, that's good. Or a reason. A reason. I think some translations might even say give a reason for your faith. Um, let's look at Romans one twenty. You might recall when I was in Romans 1. Uh, this is an important verse here. Romans one twenty. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes... Both His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Everyone is without an excuse. And apologetics is often just reminding people of the idea in this verse. They do know God. No matter what they say, the Bible says they know God to some extent because He's put it in them. Let's look at Philippians one seven. I'm up here reading all the verses here. Uh, who wants to read Philippians one seven? We got Elijah. Philippians one seven. It's all right. Who's got it? Emily? Or do you want it, Elijah? Go ahead. It is only right for me to think this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are fellow partakers with me on his grace. So there's a defense and confirmation of the gospel. Paul is, is, is out there. He's proclaiming it. He's defending it. He's confirming it. And he reminds the Philippians of that. So... We have to be always ready. It's not like you're, typically, you're not just going out, searching out people to do apologetics with. It's going to hit you in the moment that you're not thinking of it. You're going to be talking to somebody about the Lord, and they're going to have this question. Why is there evil in the world? You know, where did, where did Cain's wife come from? Uh, you know, who are these Nephilim in the Bible? Uh, what is Satan about? How can God be good if there's Satan, if there's evil in the world? And so you don't have to have every single answer. It would be good if you know where to go for some answers and how to discuss those things with people, but you need to have some sense of readiness. And particularly, he's talking here just about the gospel itself. Be ready to make a defense. Why do you believe it? Do not say, well, I don't really know. I just Somebody told me to believe in Jesus, so I did. Somebody told me I could go to heaven when I was five, so I did it. And now I'm 45 and I can't tell you anything else about Jesus or the gospel. Uh, That would be embarrassing. 
Every profession in the world prizes, rewards people who grow in that profession. Every degree you can get, as some used to be, now I don't know, but used to be a reward for your studies, for your efforts. Now they're kind of just throwing degrees out to anybody who pays the money, but it used to be that. But in Christianity, there's this idea that, well, I don't have to grow. I don't have to learn. That theology, that's for the seminarians. That's for the pastors. Well, no, we need to be ready. And the idea of being ready is that we have been learning. We have been growing. And we're being fed by the word and we're growing in the word. We're not just taking in the formula, the, the breast milk, the pure breast milk. We're taking in the meat of the word as well. So here in, in verse 15, this word apologia suggests that things are going to come up. What we would call informal circumstances when believers are asked spontaneously about their faith. You're going to be asked about your faith. You don't have to give them the 600-page dissertation that you wrote on uh, the answer to their question. But the idea here is that you're just ready for those questions. You're ready in your mind. You're ready in your heart. You know something about Scripture. Uh, not just talking about philosophical or academic fields. He's expecting any Christian to be able to humbly defend the reason they have hope in Christ. At, at the bare minimum, why do you have hope in Christ? And it needs to be because the Scripture teaches certain things about it and you've believed in Christ because of those promises that God has made. So let's go to 1, 1, 1 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. Who is he writing to here? Is he just writing to the academics, to the people in seminary? Is he just writing to the ones with a, a PhD in apologetics? Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as exiles, scattered throughout the backwoods of the Roman Empire. That's where all those provinces are. The backwoods, you know? Comfort, and out in Bulverde, and Bernie, and these places where, you know, these rednecks live, and... Uh, some of, the, some of the California hippies and, and all of that. You know, just this average normal people. People who go to drink uh, Black Rifle coffee. You know, just, just the guy that, that works with his hands. They need to know to give, how to give a hope. How to give a reason for the hope that they have in Christ. Uh, to make a defense does not mean we say, just take a leap of faith. I've heard this from Christians, and I understand maybe they're trying to do their best, but we've got we to gotta do better than that. We cannot just say, well, I don't know why I believe. You just need to take that leap of faith. Well, yes, faith is, is a leap in the sense that it's trusting in things that you can't see yet, but it's based on something. It's based on the person and work of Christ, which is revealed to us in Scripture. And so... If somebody says, why do you believe in Jesus? Why did you become a Christian? Why, why, why? Just take a leap of faith. It sounds like you don't really know. It sounds like you don't know what happened and you don't know the Bible. So we don't need to park our mind out in the parking lot. There was, there was kind of an evangelistic movement for some time in America, which is it's, it's just about faith. It's not about your mind. Don't think about it too much. Just take a leap of faith. Just try Christ, you know, try God. I remember a sermon I heard, it must have been over 20 years ago now. It wasn't really a sermon, but a talk. And it was called Try God, and it was on the Trinity. But the idea was, well, you don't understand the Trinity. It's too much for us anyway. Just, just try God out. 
See what happens. You know, give him the 90-day test. Anybody heard the 90-day test? Just me that went to bad churches. <laughs> okay. Um, the 90-day test. It's kind of like the, the diet, you know, try it for 90 days, see if you lose weight. Try God for 90 days. See if he doesn't do something for you. See if he doesn't bless you. See if your life doesn't turn out better. Man, you become a Christian 90 days later, it might be really hard. Your whole family might have abandoned you. I mean, you, you know, you don't know. Here's what Calvin said about this verse. Calvin says that Peter bids them only to be ready to give an answer. Lest by their sloth, that's laziness, and their cowardly fear of the flesh, they would expose the doctrine of Christ by being silent to the derision of the ungodly. So people are, are making fun of you because you're a Christian. You have opportunity to give an answer. Be ready to give an answer. Again, you don't have to give them the, the most academic answer, but just the Bible. The Bible is what we use. The Bible is what we use to speak to people about God, about Christ, about salvation. Tom Schreiner says this in his commentary here, uh, specifically about this verse. The exhortation here is instructive. For Peter assumed that believers have solid intellectual grounds for believing the gospel. There is a mind-reasoning, logical explanation that we can give. The truth of the gospel is a public truth that can be defended in the public arena. This does not mean, of course, every Christian is to be highly skilled apologist for the faith. It does mean that every believer should grasp the essentials of the faith and should have the ability to explain to others why they think the Christian faith is true. We are using our minds that God has given us to make an explanation of why we believe what we believe. Who do we say this to? Peter says to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. There's something about our lives that draw people to ask the question. Or maybe they come to church and, and they meet you and, and they ask this question. Or maybe it's a family member and they say, how did you get through that, that time in your life that was so hard? How did you get through that trial in your life? I had a, a Jewish man who was doing some financial stuff for me years ago. And I told him some of the things we had gone through and with, with just near bankruptcy uh, early on in our marriage and how we had been saved out of that and the Lord had grown us. And um, He said, how, how did you do that? Like, how, how did you process that? How did you get through tough times? And this is a guy where his whole world was money. And I said, it was God. It was God in Christ. And he didn't want to really talk about that because he was Jewish uh, or culturally Jewish. But I went on just to give a short explanation of the gospel. But he had noticed that we just weren't giving up on life just because times got hard financially. We just weren't chunking in the towel. And the idea here is that you're living such a life that unbelievers can recognize that and talk to you and ask you questions. You're not, you're not such an annoying person every time you talk about Christ. They're willing to come up and talk to you about it. And he says, the hope that is in you. That's what you're giving a defense for, the hope that is in you. This is the common living hope among believers of a future salvation which defines and unites believers. In other words, it's the Christian faith. It's the Christian faith. You give a, you give a hope. Christ is coming back. And what does that mean? And, and how do we get saved? And, and how are we justified, declared righteous now, justified? And we don't have to go through the judgment as a result of that. And Christ stands in our place. And just knowing 
Some essentials like that can be very helpful. It's important to notice we are to give an account for the hope within us. This means we are not to momentarily set aside our faith. I'm going to come back to this over and over. You're not setting aside the gospel. You're not setting aside Christ. You're not setting aside the hope that is within you. That's, that's actually what you're talking about when you give a defense. We're not to adopt a position of so-called unbiased neutrality in which we are impartial or open-minded. And this is how sometimes that, that goes. Okay, I understand you, you don't believe the Bible. I get that. Let's set the Bible aside now and let's talk about something else. Philosophy, science. Do those things point to God? Yeah, Romans 1 says that the person can look out and they can see creation and that points to God. But what else does Romans 1 say? That sin has messed with your thinking ability. Your mind doesn't work as an unbeliever. So they suppress the truth and unrighteousness and ungodliness. They push it down. Oh yeah, they know there's a God. Well, they will never admit it. And they're going to suppress that truth and ignore it and push every bit of evidence that points to God down. So it doesn't matter if you get all the creation books that you can give to an evolutionist. They're just going to say, this is some dumb Christian writing some dumb book that I'm not even, I'm just going to throw it in the trash. They suppress the truth. They have their own worldview. Here's what Spurgeon said. He was doing apologetics in his sermons often. He said, have your doctrinal views and all your knowledge of Christ packed away in a handy form so that when people want to know what you believe, you can tell them. If they wish to know why you believe that you are saved, have your answer all ready in a few plain, simple sentences. I mean, that's where it starts with apologetics. Just a few plain, simple sentences. And in the gentlest and most modest spirit, make your confession of faith to the praise and glory of God. Who knows but what such good seed will bring forth an abundant harvest. Just give basic, plain, truthful. Do what you can do. Don't try to sound fancy. Don't try to sound smart. Don't try to sound uh, like you're the best apologist that God has ever brought uh, into this world. Just give an answer. But the point here is he's not setting aside his doctrinal views. He's not setting aside the knowledge of Christ. That's where we're coming from. That's our basis. That's our foundation. And then lastly here, we can't forget this, with gentleness and reverence. There's a lot of apologists and people trying to be apologetic that are, they're not gentle. They're not gentle. We might be tempted when somebody argues and argues and argues to be harsh with them, to be hard on them. And Peter adds this, because I think he knows, and, and the Lord working through Peter to, to write this, knows that we can get easily angered. Oh, you don't believe what I believe? You're calling my faith foolish? You're calling me silly for being a Christian? Well, let me tell you what I really think about you. We can't do that. We can't do that. Um, so we've got to be gentle. Uh, have, have courtesy. Have some gentleness and have, have some reverence. Uh, some, some say respect. Really, the word here is fear. Have some fear when you go out. We know it's not fear of man. So where's the fear here? It's the fear of God. Those are people made in God's creation. Even though sin has marred that creation, has affected their minds, you're talking to people made in the image of God. And because you've received grace, you're going to turn around and treat them like they're nothing? Like they're slime? No, those those are people. Those are... 
creations of God, and you don't know how that gentle answer is going to affect their life. Somebody needs a fly swatter. Carl, you got a fly swatter in your back pocket? Gentleness and reverence. Reverence towards God. Be careful when you're talking to people. Not so scared that you can't even speak, but just like anytime you're talking about godly things in the Bible, you, you got to be reverent and gentle. Have a good conscience. Have a good conscience. That's in the next verse here. Uh, let's go back to 1 Peter 3 now and verse 16. As also in all his letters, sorry, I'm in 1 John. Oh, too far. All right, 1 Peter 3.16, having a good conscience. That's the next one. So do it with gentleness and fear, having a good conscience, so that in the thing which you are slandered, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. They're all angry, they're upset, they're throwing all this stuff at you, and you're just gentle. You have a fear of God, not man. And you, you say things with a good conscience. You're not rash, you're not insensitive. You're not going to leave that encounter and go home and feel guilty because you sinned and got angry and were upset and you yelled. Do you think getting angry at somebody in a, in a kind of unbeliever talking to you discussion, do you think that's going to be helpful? Not at all. Now, they might insult you to the point where you have to leave their presence. But try to do that without getting angry. Just leave, go home, pray about it. There's a difference in speaking the truth and speaking the truth in love. Paul says in Ephesians 4, we're to speak the truth in love. We're to speak the truth in love, not in anger, harshness, but in love. Here's uh, something we need to remember. Keep this in mind. Apologetics does not convince someone to put their trust in Christ. Only the Holy Spirit can regenerate the heart. Here's what Greg Monson says in his book on that. Uh, His book is called Always Ready. It takes this verse... And he expands it into the whole book here and, and goes into Acts 17 and how Paul does it. First Peter 3.15, he says, does not say, it does not say that believers are responsible to persuade anybody who challenges or questions the faith. We can offer sound reasons to the unbeliever, but we cannot make him or her subjectively believe those reasons. We can refute the poor argumentation of the unbeliever, but still not persuade them. We can close the mouth of the critic, but only God can open the heart. It is not in our ability and not our responsibility to regenerate the dead heart and give sight to the blind eyes of the believers. That is God's gracious work. The Bible says God opens the heart. God grants faith and repentance. God's the one who regenerates. That's not what we're doing in apologetics. We're not trying to be so awesome with our argument that they'll just bow down to Christ right there. Sometimes that would be great if it happened. Most often it's not. You're just planting seeds and you're standing up for the truth in Scripture. But don't think it's your goal to be the Holy Spirit. That's where a lot of apologetics and evangelism goes wrong. They treat their mission as being the, I'm the Holy Spirit and I'm going to convince you. I'm going to convince you with my wise arguments. That's how it is in, in apologetics. In evangelism, it's you know, come up front, bow to the altar. I'm going to put the pressure on you until you raise your hand and close your eyes and, and bow your head. And there's a lot of pressure. 
That's not the goal of apologetics. By the way, this is a good book. I'm going to recommend it at the end here, if I can get to the end. Um, we have this one in our bookstore. I really like it. Greg Monson. So you might be saying, well, hold on a second. What's this logic talk? What's this reasoning? Should we even be using reasoning and logic to defend the faith? I mean, come on, aren't we just all about faith, trusting in the Lord, not using our minds? Well, here's Luke 10, 21. At that very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. So isn't Jesus saying here we need to be like infants and not be all worried about reasoning and logic? Set our mind aside. Just focus on the Spirit. Wait a second. Here's what Paul says. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debtor of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom, did not come to know God, but God was well pleased to the foolishness of the message. So what they're talking about in these verses here is the idea that you can't come to God through your great wisdom. The world thinks they have so much wisdom. They're going to save themselves. They're going to earn God's favor. It doesn't work. Coming to salvation, being justified, that's today's sermon again. Being justified is through faith. It's not through wisdom. What about, though, once you're saved and somebody asks you a question? Well, here's what Jesus taught. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And here's what he said. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. Did he stop there? With all your mind. What does it mean to love the Lord your God with all your mind? Does that mean be a theological couch potato? You know, I'm just going to, I'm going to go to church and hear the sermon, but I'm not going to think about it. I'm not going to go home, read the Bible and think about it. No, we focus a lot on the heart in Christianity and the soul. And this is all descriptive, really, of, uh, uh, it's not a four-part or a three-part person. It's descriptive of the whole person, everything that God has given you. And he says, this is the great and foremost commandment. This is the most important thing that you need to focus on in the Christian life. Love the Lord with everything. You don't check your mind at the door. Let's look at Jesus in Matthew 16. John Piper did a whole book on this uh, passage, which I did not see really how important this passage was. When it comes to logical thinking here, But Jesus used logic all the time. So did Paul. Paul uses it in every verse. Uh, Jesus had a lot of logical argumentation. The Pharisees and the Sadducees came. They were testing him. They asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Show me a sign. Do some miraculous work. He replied, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. They reason. They logic. They use logic. They, they think logically. Right, And in the morning, there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. That's what they say. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? An evil and adulterous generation eagerly seeks for a sign, and a sign will not be given it, except the sign of Jonah. 
There's a lot of logical reasoning built right there. And he's even playing on their logical reasoning. He's saying, look, you look outside and you guess at the weather and often you're right. You use logical reasoning. But you can't see the sign of me being here and doing all the things that I'm doing. You're not using your brain to look at me and see what I'm doing, that I fulfill scriptures, he's saying. But you can read the weather? Well, the problem is that they were evil. They were sinful. They didn't want to see the truth of Jesus. And so he uses their own logic against them, and he uses his logic to do that. We've got to get away from this idea that Christians can't use their mind and logic. Uh, here's an older book uh, by Os Guinness, Fit Bodies, Fat Minds. He says, at root, evangelical, anti-intellectualism. That's this idea that you don't need to use your mind. Just, it's just all about faith. Why do you believe what you believe? I don't know. It's all about faith. Well, he says that's a scandal and a sin. It is a scandal in the sense of being an offense and a stumbling block that needlessly hinders serious people from considering the Christian faith and coming to Christ. It is a sin because it is a refusal contrary to the first of Jesus' two commandments, to love the Lord our God with our minds. We've got to love the Lord our God with our minds. And this idea that we're not to be intellectuals. Now, I'm not using the term, and I don't think he is either, to mean academics. But intellectual, anti-intellectualism says set your mind aside and just feel. Just have emotions. That's where all the lights and the fog and all that comes from and the music that's changing in the church. That comes from this idea that we're to set our minds aside and just feel good and feel things. And Os Guinness is arguing here, the subtitle, Why Evangelicals Don't Think and what to do about it. He's arguing that we can't do that. Yeah, okay, it is because of faith, but what is faith? Because to most people, when they hear you say, I just have faith, well, they think, what does that mean? They think, I get up tomorrow morning, and I have faith that God's going to bless me today. It's not the kind of faith we're talking about. We have to say more. We have to use our minds to, to make sentences and use our voice. Other texts on reasoning and understanding. According to Paul's custom, he went to them, For three Sabbaths, he went to the Jews in Acts 17, and he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. He didn't just show up and say, I'm going to read you some passages and then walk out. He read the passage, and then he reasoned. He made an argument. He made an argument. That's what preaching is. It's making an argument from the text. Other texts on reasoning. According to Paul's custom, I already read Acts 17. uh, 2 Timothy 2, 7. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding. Consider. Think about it, he says. Think about what I'm writing, and the Lord will bring understanding to you as you're thinking through the Scriptures. I mean, that's that's amazing there. I'm thankful for that. Otherwise, we'd read this stuff, and we would not be able to make sense of it. When you were first a Christian and you read certain books of the Bible, did you just think, I'm never going to understand that? There's probably still some, right? After years and years, you read that, and you're just like, what is the book of Hebrews even about? But the Lord does give understanding. And he wants us to work at study and work at these things. Maybe you don't spend 24 hours doing it a day, but you're you're supposed to strive to understand. Some things are basic, you understand them right away. Other things, your whole life can be spent and you still don't grasp them fully in Scripture. All right, a lot of time on that verse. Let's move on to a quicker one here. Jude 3. What are we defending? We're defending the faith. He says, contend. Contend earnestly for the faith, Jude says which was once for all handed down to the saints. The faith here is 
Jude, he's saying everybody ought to contend for it. It's, it's not our own personal faith here. It's the Christian faith. The belief system that we have as Christians that comes from the Bible. The faith Jude is talking about here is the faith with a capital F. The whole content of the revealed message taught by the apostles contained in the scriptures. We could just say the doctrines of the Christian faith. The doctrines. In general, we need to contend earnestly for the truth. The, the doctrine taught in scripture. Contend. It's not just sit back and, and, and see what happens. I mean, we're, this is a war, a spiritual war. We have to stand strong. We have to stand firm. Churches fall when, when the leaders of the church don't do this. The whole church just falls. Because attacks come and they're not standing strong. They're not contending for the faith. They just let false teaching run wild. Acts 6-7, the word of God kept on spreading. And the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. He's not saying they were coming to personal saving faith. That's one way faith is used. But there's the Christian faith. The truths and doctrines of Scripture that are believed by Christians. Paul says in Ephesians 4, there's one, faith, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. He's not saying there's one personal faith. Yes, you do have to have personal faith, but he's giving doctrines here. And there's one faith, particularly here, I think he's saying one gospel truth. There's not different gospels that you can believe in Christianity. There's one set of doctrines that lead a person to understanding salvation. One set of truths of the gospel. And he says, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established here in Colossians, the faith, the Christian faith, you've got to continue in that. Yes, your personal faith is every single day. We live from faith to faith every day. But this is the Christian faith, the truths of Scripture. Uh, later times, some will fall away from the faith. Some, by longing for money, have wandered away from the faith. They wandered from the truth. They've fallen away. They've chased after something else, their sin. Christianity isn't just whatever Christians believe either. Oh, you have your beliefs, I have my beliefs. We're both Christians. What does the Bible teach? That's a huge question that you need to often ask people and yourself. What does the Bible teach? What is the truth, the, the proposition? A proposition is a, is a statement. There's truth propositions in the Bible. And there's also some implications. There's implications meaning, well, the verse doesn't explicitly have the word Trinity in there, but we get the doctrine of the Father, we get the doctrine of the Son, we get the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, and then we get the doctrine of God, and we understand that three in one, we can use the word Trinity. That's a logical implication, and it is taught throughout Scripture. But the word itself isn't necessarily used. We're not defending common sense. We're not just saying, well, it's common sense. Of course, of course you know Jesus died on the cross for your sins. We're not defending common opinion. Me and my friends agree on this. Must be true. I mean, there's a whole church. Joel Osteen has 20,000, 30,000 people. It must be true, right? The Catholics have a billion Catholics in the world. It must be true. We're not defending science. Christians sometimes get off track here. I like science. I have a degree in science or my undergrad. 
and biology. I spent a lot of time studying it in chiropractic school. It does point to God over and over. But we're not defending science because science is a knowledge, base of knowledge that is studied by humans and humans can misinterpret it. We're not even studying, uh, defending what the churches teach. That's not our goal. Well, you know, Southern Baptists teach this and the Methodists teach this and we just picked our favorite denomination and even Grace Bible Church says this. What does the scripture say? That's our first question. The church teaching it might help us. What does the Bible say? We're not studying the class or defending the classical proofs of the existence of God. Well, Thomas Aquinas, you know, he had his five ways. And I'm going to spend the rest of this course for 14 weeks teaching you all about the five ways of Thomas Aquinas. That you can know that there is a God. Most of you would fall asleep next week, not come back the next week. And there would be one or two nerds here in, in 14 weeks from now. Plus, it's the Bible that we need to use anyway. So I might mention these as we talk about methods that have been used. But I'm not going to spend a lot of time because that's not what we're defending. Or that philosophical proof, same as the classical proofs there. The Greek word for contend here is a military or athletic term, meaning to struggle or to put forth an intense effort. Contend. Contend. It's not simply defensive, but, but he's even going further here and saying, you've got to go out and proclaim this truth. So he's including some evangelism here as well. Uh, we carry the battle into the camp of the enemy. We're not waiting for them to be bringing the battle to us. Let's just hold up as Christians in a monastery the rest of our lives and never go out and proclaim the truth. Jude wrote this urgent imperative. This is what MacArthur Study Bible says. Jude wrote this urgent imperative for Christians to wage war against error in all forms and fight strenuously for the truth like a soldier who's been entrusted with a sacred task of guarding a holy treasure. Jude's saying the doctrines of the Christian faith had already been established by God through the apostles. They've been handed once for all to the saints. There's no changing. There's no adding to the Bible. This means they cannot be changed later. That rules out the Quran, the Book of Mormon, Roman Catholic tradition. Okay, we'll stop there and we'll go into verse 3 next week. And uh, I'm talking a lot, so we're not getting through all my 42 slides today. But that's okay. We'll pick it up next week. We'll talk about why we need to do apologetics in today's environment. Even I'll give you some numbers for San Antonio. And then uh, how. We'll start on the how as well. So let's remember, apologetics is defending the faith. We're going to use the scriptures and we're going to stand firm on the truth that God has given us. It's the only sure foundation. We cannot think that our wisdom is better than the Bible. Lord, thank you so much for our time just to be introduced here to apologetics, to understand what it is. Uh, give us a great boldness as we speak with others, and give us a gentle spirit as we do so. But let us proclaim the truth of Scripture. When somebody comes and asks a question, help us to be ready to be able to go to passages of Scripture or study a certain books together or look at certain sermons or teachings that are out there. Uh, give us that kind of mindset, Lord, that we are willing to learn and grow and be able to answer the objections against Christianity. We pray that you would help us to do this for your name, for your glory. Amen.